0: Hi everyone, you're listening to Backstory. Let's hear it on WTBRFM Pittsfield with Roberta McCulloch Dues of the Mayor's Office in the City of Pittsfield. Thanks for tuning in. Today we have with us Pittsfield Police Chief Michael Wynn. You've been a police officer for approximately 27 years about that yeah all right so i'm gonna i'm gonna welcome you because you there's a lot to uh chief michael Wins. i just want to give a little <laughs> so, some background for people who may not know so during your tenure you've worked in a variety of roles including patrol training swat and internal affairs you've also served as a subject matter instructor and drill instructor in various police academies so you keep busy And you are actually currently pursuing your second master's degree, which I'll get into a little bit later. But you've also found time to be a published author. And you give up your time to support the community in so many ways. And you have a weekly radio show on patrol with PPD here on WTBR
1: full credit the department has a weekly radio oh, show absolutely the, the, of course The team does all the heavy lifting for that
0: I just have to show up shout out to Gary Traversa absolutely. all right all right so needless to say you're very busy so welcome chief let's get started
1: thanks for having me it's a pleasure to be here
0: I'm so glad you're here thank you so much for making the time I with all of my guests I want people to see them as the full individual so I know that you are chief win but I want to take it a little bit back to to young Mike, and did you refer to yourself as young Mike or young Michael?
1: So, <clears throat> I'm. Excuse me. <clears throat> when I was a kid, um, my mom, you know, generally referred to me as Michael. I'm named for my father, mm-hmm. uh, and I had family nickname. I won't get into that uh, publicly.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but I think, particularly for young young boys, there comes a point when you have to kind of self-identify mm-hmm. and when i kind of got out and started forming my own f- friend network i changed um i changed the way i referred to myself as mike because okay. uh, that's how my father referred to himself okay and so uh i'd say probably elementary school be good old middle school i was michael yeah. and then after that i was mike
0: okay um Tell me a little bit about your family and how life for you um, when you were growing up, because I believe you recently have a blog post that talks about um, just your experiences. You are of mixed um, heritage, your background. And so um, I know that that can contribute to how individuals see the world. So what was it like for you?
1: So uh, I I am biracial mixed heritage Uh, when I was a kid. we we were told, we believed that my mother's family was 100% Polish. Mm -hmm. Um, And now having done some genealogy, that's probably not the case. We were raised Polish. My grandmother spoke Polish. But more likely than not, um, they they probably were Georgian um, or Georgian Jewish. And so kind of exploring that a little bit. And um, my dad was African-American. Um, which, as you know, makes it difficult to actually kind of figure out what your lineage is. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad died when I was very young. Uh, he di- I was three years old. On the day after my younger brother was born, he was killed in a car crash. Um, so yeah. for a couple years, we were back at my grandmother's farm. When my mom was trying to figure that out. Yeah. And then after uh, two and a half, three years, she took the insurance money and bought a home here in Pittsfield and that's the house I grew up in so my mom my younger brother and I and then after a a couple years a few years Mm -hmm. um the man who eventually became my stepfather you know my second father uh he came into our life uh, he's a long haul truck driver and Mm -hmm. so he rented an office and some yard from my mom to keep the truck there and then they became a couple
0: okay so what was your block what was your street that you grew up on
1: Oh, so I, uh, I grew up on the same street I live on now. Uh, I grew up in Cadwell Road on the west, uh, west end of Pittsfield. You didn't go the...
0: too far. <laughs> so um,
1: at, at some point after I was on the job uh, for reasons uh, that had to do with my grandmother's health, yeah. my mom moved back to the farm mm. and left the house here in Pittsfield empty. And so we moved into the house to kind of caretake for it. And I was out for a run one day as, as that period was coming to a close. And I knew I was going to be looking for another place to live. I was out for a run one day. And I ran by the house that I now own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, I was like, I know all the running routes. I know where all the trails are. Right. I am to learn a new neighborhood. So I bought a house 150 yards from the house I grew up in.
0: Did you feel a sense of nostalgia when you were on that block? Did it? Did you feel a, a, an emotional connection?
1: Um honestly the period when we went when my ex-wife and i moved back into the house it it wasn't very nostalgic Mm -hmm. with with everything that was going on with my grandmother and uh some issues with the deed to the property Mm -hmm. it was a stressful year Mm -hmm. um and you know we didn't really want to do it we we had an apartment that we really liked Mm -hmm. when my family approached me about caretaking the house and and it was just a year we had to get through
0: I want to go back a little bit to just your growing up as um, as a child of um, a mixed background. What was that like for you at the time that you grew up? Because I mean, we're talking like the the late seventies, early eighties, early seventies, yeah, early seventies. So, what was that like um, in this community?
1: Um, so, this this was part of what I reflected on in that blog, and full credit to my mom. Like she she was a young white woman raising two biracial children and she'd been fairly active Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, I'm not gonna say in the civil rights movement, but in like, you know, pursuing equality. And so she wanted to do right by these young boys, but you know, she didn't know how to do that. She didn't have any lived experience. And we didn't have any close family close by. Um, So my mom had met my father when they were in college um they started dating between bcc and at the time north adam state college she was pretty much disowned by her family as a result of that mm. um it wasn't until i was born that there was any reconciliation with mm. her family um ironically her younger sister kind of took a page from her book she also <laughs> married a black man um and so together the, you know the two of them against the world but right. uh, my mom raised us, like I said, in the neighborhood I live in now, yeah. which is predominantly white, and my aunt raised or her husband raised their children in the west side. Okay. Um so I was well into elementary school before I even realized like, you know, that
0: yeah.
1: race was a thing. Right. right. And we had we studied, you know, famous um Persons of color. My mom was we were avid readers, and we mm-hmm. had encyclopedias and books. And she, she always identified it, but didn't have any experience right. with it. Um, and so, going to visit my cousins over on Circular Ave, going down to at the Time Pit Park now Durant Park, that was really the only ex- only exposure we had to people of color. I didn't have any, um I didn't have any students of color in my elementary school. You went uh, to Stearns. I right? went to Stearns. Yeah. yeah.
0: Wow, I can only imagine when you go into the West Side. I mean, because they probably saw people of different backgrounds because the West Side was a very mixed neighborhood. Very mixed. Mm. So, how was the interactions between you and your cousins then? Like, did they have more? uh, I mean, to be to be a little bit blunt, did they have like feel like they were aware of their blackness a little bit more? Oh,
1: certainly. Yeah. Um, and so I guess another ironic thing that. My mom has three siblings, two sisters and a brother. And so her older sister, Jeanette, had had one child, my cousin Kelly, who we tragically lost a few years ago to breast cancer. Um, and so <clears throat> just because of the way it worked out, Kelly and I were the same age. We were only a couple months apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, my brother John and my cousin Brendan were the same age. They were only a month apart. And it worked out. All the couples had pairs. And so you know, I spent a lot more time with Kelly than I did with Brendan. And as a result, and and, and they lived in a fairly homogenous neighborhood too. Mm-hmm. So my brother had more lived experience as a child with people of color than I did even. Um, and, and so again, it, it wasn't until I was well in elementary school that I, it even became a thing. Yeah. And it, it probably wasn't until I was in college that yeah. I actually had to confront it uh, and, and figure out a way to deal with it, so.
0: So interesting. So I, it's so interesting, and I think even more so that you had that gap until you got to college that yeah. you were able to really go through your childhood, your adolescence, your teen years, really sort of, sort of in your have, having your own um, perspective of yourself, and not necessarily having that challenged in a major way.
1: So one one of the other things I wrote about in this blog post was that up until I was trying to figure out how how I was going to get out of high school and process into the military. If I had to take a standardized test or fill out a demographic form, I always filled in the bubble for other. You did. And left it blank.
0: Before it was popular.
1: Yeah. Um, And then I was, and I distinctly remember the Mm -hmm. day I was processing in for a Naval ROTC scholarship and I was sitting in my officer selection officer's space Mm -hmm. in Albany Mm -hmm. and he looked at me and he said you're a very strong candidate you're probably going to get an ROTC scholarship but if you change this to black you will get a scholarship today did you? I thought about it for a little while, and yeah, I did. Okay, <laughs> it's, like, it's a lot of money on the table.
0: Right, right, right. Oh boy. Okay, so I'm going to keep you back um, on memory lane for okay. a little bit because um, there was a really great picture of you and your brother in the Berkshire Eagle. It was in the um, the October 11th, 1980 edition.
1: How did you find that picture?
0: Uh- <laughs> I do my research, and um, and so you are scraping ice off the family car. Okay, yep. so was that the first time that you ever had been photographed by? I'm
1: I'm pretty sure that was the first. Well, actually, no, that wasn't. Now that I think about it. So when I was uh, when I was a kid, uh-huh. uh, one of the things my mom did again to you know try to expose us and, and we'll broaden our horizons is every summer for several years we had a, a fresh air child. From the city nice. and uh, Gerald would come and stay with us for the summer and it, probably the first time I was ever photographed at least for the media um, was we were picking him up at mm-hmm. the bus station nice. um, and I know I don't even know that I don't even know that I was identified in that photo it was just kind of like a b-roll shot of oh. the of the program
0: do you I mean this could this is a long shot but any connection still to Gerald do you know no
1: we is? lost touch with him when I was uh, in middle school
0: Oh. I remember, um, I I was in New York City, I remember seeing commercials for the Fresh Air Fund and donate to that and you would see these wide open green spaces that you'd leave, you'd leave the urban environment and go to these spaces. It it seemed fantastic.
1: It's, you know, I I have one distinct, I have many distinct memories, but I have one that Mm -hmm. just boggled my mind. We couldn't convince him Mm. that milk came from cows. Like in his lived experience, milk came in a carton in from a carton, the store. He right. couldn't make the conceptual <laughs> leap back to the cow. And, uh, you know, the family right. owned a dairy farm, so we had to walk him through that.
0: Right. And and so he has something to take back to yeah. his friends in the city. Like, <laughs> I have something to share with you. Yeah, it, you know, I think it, it goes back to your point of reference. What's your, like you said, your lived experience. And for him, if you've never seen a, if you've never seen a cow, Right. It's I mean it's pretty radical, you know. I think it's radical. All right, so um, one final question about that picture. When you think about it as an adult, and you look at your young self and your brother, what comes to mind?
1: It, so that that picture holds a special place in my heart, and uh, you know, it's a great picture. I think it captured the moment of you know these two young boys, just you know, doing what you got to do to get the day started. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mom was a school bus driver, so it was early. Um, but the the part that was the coolest for me about that picture is the photographer the mm-hmm. journalist was Joel Labrizzi who was award winning I think he got a Pulitzer uh, Eagle photographer Eagle photo journalist yeah. and Joel was still with the Eagle when I got into public service so you know he photographed me <laughs> several times subsequently and we yeah. always uh, he remembered that picture I remembered <laughs> him taking that picture uh, and it was just a cool connection to come back around to
0: full circle yeah All right. So as a kid, you mentioned, you know, trying to hightail it out of high school. So I want to go back to when you were thinking about future professions um, and your when I grow up list. Did you know that you wanted to be a police officer?
1: No, ironically, I absolutely did not want to be a police officer. Okay. Um, do tell. So I wanted I wanted to go in the military from a very young age i wanted to go in the military and i was driving over here this morning i had a memory and my mom's gonna be really angry but at one point i think i was in the fifth grade i was reading i was a boy scout and so i was reading boy's life magazine and at the time in the back of boy's life they used to advertise for these private military schools mm-hmm. and i think i was in the fifth grade i wrote to a bunch of those schools and got their catalogs and their applications <laughs> i was like mom send me to one of these <laughs> i can't imagine what she was thinking uh, but i i knew i wanted to be in the military and so you know Junior year in high school, um, if you're thinking about that kind of track yeah. as an officer, you got to make some decisions. And so I applied for a naval ROTC scholarship and I applied to the Naval Academy, West Point, and the Coast Guard Academy. Um, and I had the good fortune to get accepted to both Navy and Coast Guard. Yeah. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table with both acceptance letters. This was the late 80s. Uh, it was the you know, Miami Vice era, the mm-hmm. war on drugs was exploding. Mm-hmm. Uh, Coast Guard was very, very active in interdiction in Florida. And I consciously said, I don't want to be a cop. I don't want to do law enforcement. Mm. And so I did not go to Coast Guard. Um,
0: why? I got to ask you why you said that.
1: Because I, you know, it, so in my mind at the time, having grown up in the 80s, mm-hmm. mid to late 80s, it was the height of the Cold War, mm-hmm. and I, you know, I thought I was going to go fight the Russian bear. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to. I didn't want to do drug enforcement. Yeah. I wanted. I. You were wanted thinking to re- higher. Was, I don't know that it was higher. I mean, yeah. in hindsight, I, I think it probably was a more significant role. Right. Um. And you know, the Cold War fizzled, and everything. Yeah. Like yeah. I, I took Russian in college because I thought I was going to go stand in the fold the gap and stare down Ivan. <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: I gotta think about this. <sighs> All right, so. The 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 passion for the military. I'm trying to figure out where where did that where did that come from? Because you obviously had this this really, really deep connection to wanting to attach yourself to this. So where did that come from? Was it from the news? Was it
1: So, again, one of the things that my mom tried to do is to expose both of us to a variety of different experiences and a variety of different people. And one of the ways, you know, I did that, as I said, was joining Scouting. Yeah. And uh, I was very fortunate that in my cub scout den and then later in my boy scout troop mm-hmm. a lot of the Scoutmasters were military mm-hmm. they had spent time in the military and they had gotten out and either come home or relocated here a lot of them were general electric or general dynamics um and they they identified at a very early age i probably wasn't 10 or 11 that being you know being the son of a single mother maybe being the son of a single uh, mother of mixed heritage that there was some challenges there so they really took mm-hmm. me under their wings mm-hmm. um, pushed me into the sciences and introduced like I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time over at General Electric and General Dynamics um, meet officers from Navy Blue and Gold Association so as as a middle schooler I was I'm not gonna say like being prepared but yeah. at least being, ex- Having the door open, yeah. the, the military could provide me with some options. And so, um, you know, I, I never considered anything else when I was in high school. I knew I wanted to go in the military.
0: Nice. Well, tell me the leap from the uh, Naval Academy to Williams.
1: <laughs> so I decided to go to Navy. Uh, my entire senior year, knew I was going to Navy, I was prepping to go to Navy. And I was a big science geek in high school. I mm-hmm. took two years of college chemistry while I was still in high school. Uh, and, I, and I thought I was going to study chemistry. I was, we were the Top Gun class, so I was going to fly jets. Of course, okay. I, you know, I was ignoring the fact that I was blind at the time. Um, to Coke bottle glasses. Oh. And uh, <laughs> so I, I took all my AP exams in my senior year and I get down to Navy, and I'm going through plebe summer and training, and they call us in to King Hall, to Chow Hall one day to kind of receive the results of our exams. And mm-hmm. I did okay on yeah. chemistry, but I maxed out on AP English and validated out of freshman English. I'm like, this is awesome! Uh-huh. So I quickly changed my major from chemistry to English and moved into the humanitarian uh, humanities track. Right. And at the time, in the late 80s, it didn't matter what your major was. Everybody from Navy was immersed in engineering classes. Okay. To, even if you were an English major, you would be qualified to sit for your engineering boards when you graduated. Mm. And so, um, at Navy, you know, going through plebe it's just a drag, mm-hmm. studying all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, th- going to Navy was was a humbling experience. Right? Mm-hmm. We get there and. Um, Like I said, I thought I was going to study chemistry and fly jets. And before Pleep summer was over, Mm -hmm. I had changed my mind. I Was going to study English and go in the Marine Corps because I wasn't getting anywhere near a cockpit with my vision. Right. Um, And you know, you you go there and they tell you you're in the top one tenth of one percent of your classmates academically Mm. in the country. And you get there and you're you know at best average. Mm. Right. Everybody in the class, all fifteen hundred of you, were rock stars. They're all
0: all stars. Right.
1: And you you know you gotta you gotta average that out right, right. and i, I was I, I was way below average <laughs> compared right. to my classmates Right.
0: so then from that point then how was williams your first choice or no
1: so it, the naval academy is, is supposed to be a four-year program and you graduate with your bachelor's degree and your commission yeah and so i got through i i started i started challenging my decision mm. during plebe year. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I made a conscious decision. I was not going to let that experience beat me. If if I was going to reconsider something, I was going to at least finish that year. Right. Plus, my second class summer, my mm-hmm. my sophomore summer, I had some great stuff lined up, so I wasn't going to give up on that. Mm-hmm. So I went back as a sophomore, or as we would say a youngster, and I started the academic year. And it was probably... October of my third semester.
0: Okay. And it
1: was late at night. I was you know, several hours into my homework yeah. and it was well past lights out and I wasn't done yet. And I looked at what I was working on. I had spent hours working on engineering and I hadn't gotten to my English assignments yet. And I said, you know, you I can't, can't do this. I can't do this anymore. It's not sustainable. So I went to class the next day and I had a conversation with my um, English professor. Mm -hmm. And ironically, she was a part-time resident of Mm Tiringham. Her husband was a professor at Williams and she was like, if you're going to study English, you've got a world-class institution in your backyard, go home. Right. Uh, And so I, you know, can't do that. I can't quit here. And so the next, she went home that weekend and the following week when I walked into class, she handed me a Ziploc bag full of Berkshire fall foliage leaves. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I resigned my appointment later that week. Um, so it was the middle of my semester, so mm-hmm. I couldn't go back to school until the following fall. So I took some classes at BCC mm-hmm. and was fortunate enough that Williams accepted me mm-hmm. um, given my departure from Navy. Right, And I went to Williams um, yeah. as a sophomore yeah. after that gap year.
0: All right, and you studied English literature and American studies. I did. All right, so on that path and you know, you go through <clears throat> You know, studying. Um, you know these these concentrations at what point then did you think all right what am i going to do with myself am i going to think about my future you know in relation to service or communities like what was your thought at that point because obviously you had so many options so when i left
1: you. navy yeah. uh, because I, it, you have to resign you can't mm. just quit right i was i was in the military i had signed this contract i was walking away i i owed them a lot of money mm. um you know you get paid when you're a midshipman at the Naval Academy, yeah. but they're docking your pay for all of your uniform and equipment, so I had a outstanding loan balance. Yeah, um, And so when I went to Williams, I, I when I left Navy, I had to agree that I would continue to pursue my commission. And so I left Navy and shortly thereafter got accepted into the Marine Corps um, Platoon Leaders Course program And enlisted in the reserves to get ready to go. So I got to Williams as a Marine Corps reservist planning on going back to training. And I did. Uh So the summer after my sophomore year, the summer I turned 21, I went to uh, Marine Corps Officer Candidate School Platoon leaders course in Quantico, Virginia. Mm -hmm. And I was about five, four and a half weeks into uh, my first rotation. Mm -hmm. And I, well, we found, I got injured. But it, it, I didn't get injured there. We found out that it was an old injury. I, did, I sustained an injury in high school that I wasn't aware of. Yeah. Uh, and at the time, you know, it was peacetime Marine Corps, mm-hmm. it was a career-ending injury. So they booted me out of the Marine Corps. I was 21 years old. And I had never wanted to do anything but be in the military. Uh, so that and,
0: must have been heartbreaking.
1: And I didn't know what to do. And so I was I was fortunate. I had a mentor. He had been my sailing coach at Navy. Yeah. And uh, I called him. I was like, "They're going to kick me out of here. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I'm going to do." And he had retired from the military and started working with the Drug Enforcement Administration. <laughs> and he was involved in a program um, that can we can talk about it now. They didn't talk about it much back then. Yeah. He was involved in a program called Operation Snowcap, okay. where they were training DEA agents to go to South America. To target drug production labs, they were doing covert counterinsurgency operations in the jungle, um, going after airstrips and, and cocaine processing factories. And he was the trainer for these agents who were going down there. That's and heavy he, stuff. He, and he took them into the field. So he's like, doing the same stuff you'd be doing in the Marine Corps. Come work with us, right? So that you know, for the, my last two years at Williams, that was the plan. Mm-hmm. Being, become a federal agent go do stuff in the jungle. <laughs> and when I graduated in 93, DEA wouldn't take you if you didn't have law enforcement experience. So I had to figure out a way to get some law enforcement experience. Right. So you know I always say this to kids, so I did what any recent college graduate would do when you don't have a job. I went home. Yeah. and tried to figure out how to get some law enforcement experience.
0: Okay. And that was your initial foray into
1: so first time I ever thought about being a local cop.
0: Okay what was your relationship to local law enforcement i mean obviously you're part of this the, the 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 network of brothers but prior to that growing up what was your relation to did you just see police as an entity as a far or
1: so i think the the only conception other than a, a couple minor brushes, you know, at some high school parties where you know we'd, they would chase us into the woods, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The only conception I had of law enforcement at all, the only interaction I had was. Um, Former Pittsfield Police Officer Ray Shagri, who was our safety officer, he mm-hmm. was the one who came into school and did the pedestrian safety and the bicycle safety. Mm-hmm. Because my mom was a school bus driver, right. she knew him, and so you know I, I knew him as Officer Ray. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know him well, but he was he was you know the Pittsfield Police Department and former Trooper um, Freddie Taliaferro who inspected the school buses. So he would come and do like our bus evacuation drills and stuff. And so I knew Trooper Talia um, But that was it. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know anything about local law enforcement.
0: Okay. So you joined the police department in 1995.
1: So I came home, didn't have a job. And um, actually I went away for the summer after I graduated. I worked at a Boy Scout camp. Uh, on the waterfront, doing aquatic stuff for the summer. Came back, didn't have a job. Uh, picked up a couple of part-time jobs, and shortly after I got home, the city advertised for a position with the West Side Neighborhood Resource Center. Right, uh, and the resource center was community policing funded program. The department was going to open an office mm-hmm. in the West Side. And they needed a civilian liaison to work with those patrol officers, and so I applied for that job. Just randomly, right. and uh, was fortunate enough. I got it, right. um, you know.
0: And you were the first ever director, right?
1: Yeah, they had they hadn't established yeah. the center yet. Yeah. <clears throat> so, um, you know, Reverend Durant,
0: yeah,
1: Reverend Pratt, mm-hmm. Jim Williamson, you know, a bunch of prominent West Side people. Uh, you know, Reverend Durant's son was also a candidate for the job, and they selected me over him. Tyus and I worked together. He worked with us part time. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I I took that job, um, met the officers who were assigned to that program, Mm -hmm. James Hunt, Dwayne Foisy, Tommy Barber. And at the time, one of the things the department was struggling with was how to recruit more people of color to take the civil service exam. Mm -hmm. We hadn't had... um, a, an officer of color at that point hired, I don't remember if the last one was Officer Walter Powell or Officer Joel Maurer, but it had been years, mm-hmm. and it was because nobody was taking the test, and so I was assigned to try to figure out a way to hmm. make the test more attractive, mm-hmm. and so I was like, well, I'll take the test. You yeah. know, Is there something about this test that's driving people away? And so I took the test and did very well. Excuse what? me. <coughs>
0: that's okay. And
1: I was on the top of the list, um, two years later when they they started hiring
0: when you took the test did you notice anything or uh, you obviously you took it from with with fresh eyes so were there anything you know things that stood out to you when you took it that would make you see like this is maybe a barrier or whatever well in
1: our professional capacity you've been in the room when i've complained about civil service many times and and just you know in hindsight looking at it a couple obvious things Mm -hmm. like First of all, you have to pay to take the test, right? mm-hmm. so if you're socioeconomically challenged, that's going to be a problem. Secondly, the test is offered in at the time. I was fortunate; I only had to go to Dalton, but civil service picks regional hubs to hold the test. So yeah. if you don't have your own car, that can be a challenge. Right. And then the other thing, and we're still dealing with this today, is if you're, you know, working class and you got you're holding down a couple jobs it's a day-long test, sometimes on a Saturday. Like, if you work in the service industry, you probably have to take time off right. to go take that test. And not so, get paid. Yeah. And you know, to this day, mm-hmm. there are still these barriers. It's one of the reasons, you know, we we try to work with interested candidates and, you know, f- figure out ways to help them overcome some of those, including transportation. Mm. But the other thing is, the test is just, um, first of all, it doesn't test anything that's yeah. appropriate for law enforcement. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a general knowledge test. Um, and it's. I'm not going to say it was a difficult test, but it's written by academics, mm. so it,
0: wouldn't I, it make more sense to have people who are in the professions be at the table when things like that are put together?
1: You have to look back at the history of civil service and remember why it was created. Right? Mm. It was. It was created to overcome nepotism and get politics out of government mm. hiring, and at the time, it served its purpose. But you know, with Strong labor laws and strong unions, it, hmm. it, it's very redundant now. Hmm. And it, it definitely minimizes the available candidate. Problem.
0: Right. We see that, yeah. too, for the city. So, hmm. well, in thinking about you, you're in this role and you're the, the director, right? And you're doing all this. You're building bridges, basically. You're building bridges. Trying.
1: Trying yeah. to.
0: Um, and you, you do this work. When you think about your time back as a director and the the bridges that were built then and your approach to community policing today, how has it influenced you?
1: So the... The, the first thing to remember when you talk about community policing is there's two components to it. Mm-hmm. It's community first and then policing. I get really frustrated when I hear from somebody, you know, the department doesn't do enough community policing. You can't do community policing without the community. Right. And most of the stuff that we worked on when I was at the Westside Neighborhood Resource Center had nothing to do with the police department. Mm-hmm. It, you know We were in a problem-solving role. We were kind of in an ombudsman role. We had... We had some significant controversies. Mm-hmm. I think one of the first things I had to confront is we had had some um, drug-related violence on, you know, street-level violence on several streets, mm-hmm. and the local taxi company basically just said we're not we're not picking up fares in that neighborhood anymore. Huh. It was the only public transportation right. available. You know, it wasn't tenable. Right. It wasn't legal. Right. Um, and so we had to have these community-wide meetings and, and mediate that dispute. And you know. We could understand the driver's concerns, but the, that wasn't the appropriate response. Right. We had to tell the community, you know, you you want this service, you deserve this service. You got to convince these young men to stop messing around, right? Right.
0: right. Um,
1: you're going to have much more influence with them than we are, and we took that approach and take that approach to this day mm-hmm. with a lot of our our issues, particularly in our socioeconomically challenged neighborhoods. You got to set. And agree on the standards and norms right. of acceptable conduct.
0: Right. It, it's the the community, as you as you say, the when you, when you live in a community, that that is your place, right? And those are your neighbors, and it's it's saying, listen, we don't want that here, yep. and we're not going to tolerate it, right? And so every neighborhood has that ability to have that agency, um, um, in in how it it moves. But I think that there are so many factors that hinder people. There's fear. Oh, especially absolutely. if like the 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 elements that are negative um seem um that they're stronger then people they feel like that agency has been diminished and they don't feel like they have a right to even say anything for fear of retaliation or whatever sometimes I mean
1: you you've heard me say this in community meetings um you know, most, not all, I mean, mm-hmm. we, we do have some out-of-town elements that, you know, come here specifically to deal drugs, engage in stuff. But even when we have out-of-town organizations, at some point, a lot of the players, at least the street-level players, are mm-hmm. local. They're right. they're recruited and they're here. And every time we have a, a, a violent incident, particularly a gun-related incident, that gun didn't magically materialize in mm. that young person's hand at the time of the That's incident. Right. They left the house that day if they didn't have it on them it was hidden somewhere nearby right somebody knew that that young person had access to that gun right much better to tell us before the right. crime of violence happens than right. be telling us after the fact.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. People everyone, no matter who you are, you have to lay your head down somewhere. Right. <clears throat> so it's not that, you know, people just disappear into the caves. Right. There there is a there there is an a place where they go. So it really is about thinking about how do we preserve our livelihood, our quality of life for our children, making sure our seniors can walk the streets safe. Exactly. All of that matters and we all really do have the power to think about how we are going to see our neighborhoods and what we allow in it um, and then work alongside those agencies that can help us Um, I realize we have like 20 minutes left and I have so many things (laughs) in my head that I want to ask you so I'm going to I just I I think I want to um, I the fact is that you you really you ascended through the ranks, Chief, um, in an awesome way. I mean, once you joined the police force in 1995, you your, your promotions, the multi, multiple promotions, followed. And, um, and then I want to say in, which year was it? Tw- two, uh, 2007, you were appointed the acting Police Chief. Um, that was the, the time when Chief Riello, yeah. he, he departed. Um, and then 10 years later you were finally installed as the permanent police chief. That was (laughs) another long story. That's a, that's a long story. Um, give me the clip notes version.
1: So just to go back to the promotion. So so again, when I joined the Pittsfield police department, I had no intention of being a local cop. Mm -hmm. I wanted to be a federal agent. And so I took the test at the request of chief Lee to try to figure that out, got the job, got to the Academy. And, um, you know, so in 1996, when I got out of the academy, the plan was still to become a federal agent. Yeah. And so I'm working and I'm going through um, several selection processes with the border patrol, uh, customs, DEA, Yeah. and ultimately was a finalist for a position with DEA, and then at the very last minute wasn't selected for that job. Uh, and so hmm. I came back from the meeting with my DEA recruiter and just devastated right I don't know what I'm gonna okay. do now. And I met with my lieutenant at the time, and I was like, "Hey, boss, not for nothing." I'm, you know, everybody knew I was leaving. Right? Yeah. Everybody knew I was. It was a stepping stone job, and so I came back. I was like, "They are not taking me. Um, I'm, I'm not going to be leaving." And so he closed the door and he said, "Look, we've been." We've had our eye on you. They, I knew these guys from when I was at the resource center. He's mm-hmm. like, we've been holding off on providing you with any specialized training because we didn't want to invest in you if you were going to leave. But if you're going to stay and you tell me you're going to stay, we've got a plan for you. Yeah. I was like, well, not going anywhere now. What's the plan? <laughs> and um, I had done some training for the special response team when yeah. I was at the resource center. They knew that I had some instructor credentials and some other things. So that first year after I got turned down by the DEA, I spent six months of the year on the road going to instructor Mm -hmm. schools because the idea was for me to take over the department's training unit and build a training capacity so when i started that process in my head i was like okay i'm gonna i'm gonna do this training thing
0: yeah
1: i'll start studying for promotional exam and i was like here's the thing i'll do sergeant in five yeah lieutenant in ten captain in fifteen and then by that time, Chief Riello—now Chief Lee had left. Chief Riello—he'll mm-hmm. be trying to figure out what he's going to do. He's probably going to go to another agency. Mm-hmm. I'll go with him, right? So I made—I made sergeant in five. Yeah. I made lieutenant in like eight. Yeah. So I was a little ahead of the the goal. I had done my um, my fellowship down in Quantico, and so I get selected, early selected for captain. In the summer of two thousand seven, yeah, but they can't make me a permanent captain yet because the incumbent captain John O'Neill wasn't scheduled to retire until right. like December.
0: Captain in charge,
1: <laughs> so not yet. <laughs> acting I, I, captain no. in charge. I, nope. I was an acting captain, <laughs> yeah. and I was just the admin captain. I went upstairs to go in admin. Oh, so I went to admin in July. Yeah, and <laughs> it was this was this was weird. So on November first, yeah. Chief Riello called me into his office, and he said, Have, been sharing this with anybody been keeping it quiet i have just accepted a job with another police department i leave in 30 days
0: that messed up your plan
1: <laughs> and so i was like okay what's that mean he goes well we have to go across the street i was like why are we going across the street because i've been talking to the mayor and this job is yours if you want it Wow. I'm like, Excuse me. I was the junior captain.
0: Did you even envision that, <laughs> like chief, like could have no. been in your future? Because and, you even said in your plan that you're going to go with him.
1: Yeah, at some point, I thought I might be a police chief, but not here. Uh. Um. So we go across the street. I Have my first, you know, lengthy meeting with Mayor Roberto. Yeah. And at the end of the meeting, he's like, can you do it? And I was like, I can. You know, I'm not sure. I was the junior captain yeah. by a, a significant number of years. I yeah. was younger than all of the other captains. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a breadth of experience, but not nearly the type of experience the other guys had. And so you know, Mayor Roberto said, okay, you know, December 1st. Did
0: that's... you feel imposter syndrome at oh, that moment? Oh, definitely. Yeah.
1: I still feel imposter syndrome sometimes. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I found out on November 1st, and I took command on December 1st. Wow. With no preparation.
0: That's a big jump. Yeah. Wow. But here you are. Here I am. What a story. Well, I mean, you know, during your tenure, you've, you've done so many things. and But I, I really want to ask you, Chief, because you've seen so much. And what have been some of the pressing issues that have kept you up at night? And then what have been the solutions that you've been able to think about to meet them head on?
1: The pressing issues that keep me up at night. Um you know, staffing and recruiting, that, that's that been a persistent challenge for the entire 14, 15 years I've been in that office. And we haven't made a lot of progress on that. We've had some really significant gains, and then something happens, and we see some losses. Um, we've had some high-level officer involved. Shooting incidents, mm-hmm. um, you know, and it, after the investigations are done, all justified. But we are constantly doing an after action process and evaluative process. And in, in at least one of those cases, had we had more or less lethal equipment at the time and um, more scenario based training at the time, that probably could have had a different outcome. Mm-hmm. So we've added more equipment, push more decision-making to lower levels, uh, try to really encourage our officers to make decisions in the moment yeah. instead of asking a supervisor to come talk them through it, because right. time matters in those cases. Right. And we've seen some really, really positive outcomes as a result of those changes. Mm-hmm. Uh, decentralizing our decision-making, mm-hmm. I you know, I meet with my commanders and tell them if I picked you to be in one of these roles, that means I trust you to make the decisions about your unit. Tell me what you did, don't ask me to do it. Right. So we're much more nimble and agile right. than we were at the time. Um, okay. it, convincing people that investing resources, you know, equipment resources, training resources, personnel resources up front is cheaper than dealing with the downstream ramifications if we send out poorly trained poorly equipped people that's hard uh you know in the first my first budget uh for mayor roberto we got we don't we don't get these now Mm -hmm. we used to get every year you know bring your budget in with a five percent reduction a ten percent reduction and tell me what the impact is going to be on operations and so and doing the budget reduction and everything went down except for personnel and yeah. training. Yeah. And he's like, well, if you have less personnel, you need less training. I was like, no boss. Mm-hmm. If you're gonna cut my people, mm-hmm. I need to train the remaining people more. Absolutely. And that's been our philosophy ever since. You
0: have to have a balance. <clears throat> have to have a balance. Um, oh boy, <clears throat> let's see. Um. Looking back to 2020, Um. I mean, we're dealing with the pandemic, but we're also dealing with so much social on unrest. unrest. And um, the murder of George Floyd um, set in a wave of protests across the country. Here in Pittsfield, the rallies that took place were peaceful. I know I was a part of so many of them, and I would always see the Pittsfield Police Department there just, you know, ensuring that it was a safe um, a, a safe event. Um, so there was always this collaborative element to it. You also participated in um, in rallies during that time. Why was it important for you to, to be a part of those um, those events?
1: The, as we said when we were talking about community policing, right? the police department works in partnership with the community. Mm-hmm. And if you're a resident of our city or a visitor to our city and you want to engage in protected activities, mm-hmm. we're duty-bound and obligated to protect your right to do that. Yeah. Now, we have to be mindful that if somebody decides to cross the line If they're going to start to engage in something that encroaches on somebody else's rights, Mm -hmm. then we have to we have to stop that. But up until the and it can be loud and it can be insulting. You know, I had um, at the Park Square rally, I had one woman confront me and get in my face. And to our community's credit, um, our local leaders, including uh, Missy and Mm -hmm. Mr. Powell, came to my assistance. Mm -hmm. Right. but that's because we spent so much time trying to establish those relationships. Now, if you take offense at something like the death of George Floyd, and we all should have, um, and you're angry and you want to see change, you have a right to protest. and we have an obligation to protect that right. Um, if we're not engaged in the planning, then all we can do is respond reactively, right. and that means we have to do we have to come in with more. Right. Um, if we're engaged in the planning, then we can be proactive in our response so that means we can take a much lower posture mm-hmm. um, plus you know you, you helped me uh, edit a piece that I wrote in response to that. you know we had to look at that not just from the, the national discourse around changes to policing. Mm-hmm. I had to look at it as a defensive tactics instructor and a use of force evaluator mm-hmm. and try to figure out how did this happen because I needed to know what steps the department had to take to make sure that it couldn't happen here. Now, in hindsight, I was at a police advisory review board meeting following that, and Pierre is was like, what would you do if this happened here? And I thought for a second, I was like, well, I can't answer that because it wouldn't happen here. We had changed the training in Massachusetts so dramatically by that point right. that it would have taken a... a a catastrophic failure of a series of systems for that to arrive. Right. Now we made some changes to make sure that that catastrophic failure never occurs. But you know, a, a Massachusetts police officer, a group of Massachusetts police officers, wouldn't have engaged in that behavior, and if they had, yeah. somebody would have stopped it.
0: It's. I, I wonder about. I mean, we have such great best practices here. Wouldn't it make sense for other states to look at other states that have best practices and say, how can we learn from them?
1: So, I mean, there's a lot going on nationally. And of course, there's a lot going on in the Commonwealth that I've had the good fortune to be involved in. And I get this question from people a lot and they don't understand, right? Mm -hmm. So the United States, we're going through this with several other national issues right now. The United States government is structured so that state government state yeah. rights are preeminent yeah. and in most states in the in the nation home rule is mm-hmm. the rule of th- so there's depending on who who you ask there's between 15,000 and 18,000 police agencies in the country and every one of those agencies is under some degree of local control mm-hmm. so you can look at an organization like the International Association of Chiefs of Police which is a mm-hmm. not for profit it's not mm-hmm. a governmental and they can put out best practices Mm -hmm. and model model policies and model training but how that gets delivered to the small five officer police department in arizona is completely up to the local elected officials and the police chief and so if if those best practices never get modeled and they never get trained you don't see that type of um nationwide all it doesn't it doesn't percolate down and that's one of the reasons I said in that piece that I wrote that at some point the even if I don't want to see federalized policing that would be a disaster mm-hmm. but at some point the Department of Justice has to promulgate guidelines or yeah. regulations that departments we should all be taught use of force the same way that shouldn't be in local control.
0: It makes sense. I, I mean, and and it creates that peace of mind to know that, you know, if I travel out of state, you know, my family travels out of state, wherever, you know, I can feel, you know, that that sense of, um, of, of safety and not feel like, you know, they may encounter a situation where that same level of training and expertise is not.
1: Even before we got to the highly divided position that we're at mm-hmm. as a nation now, mm-hmm. and I'm a cop, but. And I I, I travel extensively both on and off the job. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times before I became the chief, if I was traveling for training, I would drive just to um, reduce the expense, which meant I was driving in my personally owned vehicle with firearms in a lot of other states. I'm a cop. There are parts of this country I did not feel comfortable with driving with tactical equipment in my car. Right, I had to make a trip from D.C. to um, Raleigh, North Carolina, late at night. Yeah, you you get into some rural parts of the South, and not want to get pulled over.
0: (laughs) I mean, I mean, some people would say you know sundown towns, but I mean, but but yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I I think the other level of it, too, chief, is that. You know, as a man of color, that, you know, you don't wear your chief hat that says chief on it you know what it means So nobody knows sometimes it. i do <laughs> no, no one sees that so right. it's like that in that in that split second judgment you know seeing a car full of firearms i mean here you are a decorated professional you are a law enforcement professional you are there to carry on your business but in that moment a snap it, judgment could be made
1: it, I'll, I'll be honest right in hindsight we're going back 20 years now when I got ready to make that drive, and I looked at the map, and I realized when I where I was going to be driving, I called home and said, "Listen, if I get pulled over tonight, I'm not going to get arrested. I'm going to disappear. The you know that this vehicle full of weapons and I will just be gone."
0: So that is a sigh of exhaustion Sorry. of that we even have to even you know continue to think about those things um, even in present day. Um, but I think the counter to that is that you continue to stand the fight and do good work. Um, and last April, Governor Baker appointed you and eight others from the Commonwealth to the Police Officer Standards and Training Commission. And I'm hoping maybe you can just provide a brief update on the work to date and how that's going to just benefit all of us here in the Commonwealth.
1: So I have to offer a brief correction. It's Peace Officer Standards and Peace Training Commission. Peace officers. I stand because it, corrected. Because it applies not just to police officers, right. but troopers and sheriffs deputies and yes. we're recently finding out a whole bunch of other entities that I didn't know existed like shellfish constables. Huh? Yeah, I, yeah, I had no idea either. <laughs> um, it's been a lot of work. Yeah. It's been a lot of work. Uh it it's was interesting trying to jump into the deep end and get to do the work mm. with eight fellow commissioners that i hadn't met before we got sworn in mm-hmm. you know when you put a team together you got to go through the forming storming yes. performing yeah. we didn't get a chance to do that uh, we literally met at the state house the day of the swearing in had a brief meeting before we left and then we're in zoom meetings the next day trying to get the work done
0: trial by fire
1: we've Issued guidance mm-hmm. on um, best practices for de-escalation and use of force with adolescents. We've issued regulations, mm-hmm. uh, formalizing the regulations of use of force. Mm-hmm. We're in the process right now of trying to unsort the the regulations for certification, recertification, and decertification, and what the due process will look like on that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things we realized is that there's there was some firm deadlines written into the statute but the deadlines didn't correspond to the actual work that was being done so mm-hmm. for example uh december of last year everybody who was on the job on december 1st was grandfathered in for a period of time but if you weren't sworn in on december 1st you had to meet the new requirements which weren't written on december 1st and we had 511 student officers in the academy that we had to figure something out for before they graduated, um, wow. we'll we'll finish the last batch of those 511 sometime near the end of February, and then you know focus on what we got to do for everybody who's currently serving. Mm-hmm. But that wasn't anticipated by the legislature, and so it was many many emergency meetings and late notice meetings to try to get that done.
0: Wow, you stay busy. Been You're- a little busy. <laughs> um. So we have about like five minutes left. So I just want to just make a note that uh, I'm, I'm talking with uh, Chief Win of the Pittsfield Police Department. Um, he is the author of the book Rising Through the Ranks, Leadership Tools and Tactics in Law Enforcement. If you are interested, where, Chief, where can they go and pick up the book? Is it on Amazon? It is on
1: Amazon. All
0: yeah. right. All right. It's,
1: it's- it, it was originally published by Kaplan and they relinquished the rights back to me. So now it's self-published. It's, yeah, Amazon's the easiest way to get it.
0: All right, cool. And you are currently pursuing a second master's degree. Uh, what led you to this decision?
1: <laughs> I have been thinking about going back to school for a little while. I put it off because my wife was in pursuing her doctorate and the idea of two of us being in school at the same time mm-hmm. wasn't going to work. <clears throat> I considered getting a MSW. Mm-hmm. I actually looked at a couple programs. And then I was out for a, um, a ruck march last year, mm-hmm. and I was listening to a podcast, and I learned about this program that is a— masters in psychology with a focus on military and emergency responder psychology in
0: with military again <laughs>
1: well given the work that we've been yeah. doing in the Commonwealth in the last several years around yeah. officer health officer yeah. wellness mental health and resiliency yeah. I just figured you know for my last several years on the job this would enhance my skill set as a cop
0: yeah
1: but also um it'll set me up to if I choose to do some counseling practice after I retire, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and the idea that I might be able to continue to serve my fellow officers and first responders right. and veterans, then um, keep them healthy, right? That that it was appealing. So
0: great synergy. We'll see how that goes. Well, with everything that you're doing, obviously, I mean, the work that you're doing is important. You know, education is clearly very important. You love um, education, and 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 I think it's important for the public to know too because. Um, you know, we have a chief who who values education and wants to constantly learn, and 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 wants his 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 team of professionals to constantly be on that pathway to bettering themselves as well. With all that's going on, oh, the work that you do is heavy at times. Who or what <coughs> inspires you to keep you going when you feel? down or when you just feel like you've had enough what what is that what is that it factor for you
1: um i, I can't point to any one person that inspires me mm-hmm. I, I try to you know read and listen to a variety of inspirational figures just to you know find new ways to to stay on top of it and i don't always do a great job you know mm-hmm. I, I, I wrote another recent blog post when i just had a recent episode i was like that's it i'm done I'm, i can't take anymore i got through it uh, largely because of my studies but um you know, I just try to find good practices to engage in for self-care. Stay mm-hmm. stay up with my jujitsu, mm-hmm. get outside, uh, schedule those date nights with my lovely bride.
0: Yes, I, I wasn't going to mention <laughs> it, but you you are public with those date nights. You really give us the whole script and tell it, us how it, you know, from what you ate. So to, we,
1: we've been doing that. We've been doing date nights since yeah. we started dating. We just our, our schedules are so busy, we realized if we didn't program it, we'd yeah, miss it. Yeah. Uh, and then because were you know, comparatively young, healthy, yes. uh, and no kids. Yeah. When the pandemic hit and things started reopening, we talked about it briefly. I was like, we just need to show people you can get out of the house yes. and go do some stuff, support yes. some local restaurants. So that's when we decided to start posting them. I
0: love your date night posts. They're so sweet. They're nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Chief. Um, And if you had to choose one word to describe you, what would that word be?
1: Complicated
0: okay <laughs> okay we, we can we can stay with complicated um I, I think that your story is fascinating and, um, and, and, I, and I, it's important for people, especially when you see, you know, um, those in law enforcement. There's always a backstory. There's a backstory to all of us. And so I just want to thank the chief today for taking the time to um, come on the show and tell us a little bit about young Mike so I'm gonna to get
1: to return the favor. So
0: that that is that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. So I I will be um I'll I'll be in the hot seat. Um but everyone, you've been listening to Backstory, Let's Hear It on WTBRFM Pittsfield with Roberta McCulloch dues off the mayor's office in the city of Pittsfield. Thanks everyone for listening and have a great day.